You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Fishing becomes where everybody is still going. It's still human, right? We, we Sometimes we want to make this thing all technical, but in reality, we're still human on each end of the scope right here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show we'll have my interview with Dale Zabriskie from Proofpoint. He's going to be telling us all about their recent State of the Fish Survey. And we are back. Joe, we're going to start off with a little follow-up. Uh-oh. We got a, a note from a listener. Turns out last week uh, we made a little mistake, and by we, I mean you. Yes. <laughs> I made numerous mistakes on last week's podcast. I was listening to it. I listen to all of our podcasts because I, I tend to be my harshest critic. Yeah. We had uh, a listener reach out on Twitter, and he said uh, Joe himself got confused by TLDs. Those are top-level domains Yep. in the latest Hacking Humans. We don't have a .com uk here in blighty it's oh. .co. Co. Uk. uk and he yeah. is 100% correct that was my mistake and also they are not two level tlds they are two letter TLDs. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our stories. We got a kind note from a listener named Todd, and he followed up with us from, I think it was last week's show. He said, I caught the show for today, and I heard the dodtap.com segment. Yep. He said, I had to get on dodtap.mil for my job as a commanding officer, signing for people getting out, and then I used myself as I was retiring. I'm going to send a warning back to my last unit and the transition readiness civilians who run that program to spread the word. Thanks for the tip. Very nice. Very good, Todd. Yeah, I nice. Think that, I think that's wise. Yeah, so, uh, but Todd also sent along a link to a story that I am highlighting this week, and this is a tough one. Mm. This involves a U.S. Army veteran who had PTSD, and he was targeted by some folks who were running a scam out of a prison, and this was a sextortion scam. And the way it worked is these folks in prison, somehow they got their hands on contraband phones that mm-hmm. were snuck into the prison, and they would look around on dating sites, and they seemed to be targeting folks in the military. Right. And they would send messages out to these military folks on the dating sites and pretend to be a young lady. Right. And start a conversation, start interacting with them, and they would send some nude pictures and ask for nude pictures back. Right. And then after the the photos were exchanged, they would then reach out to the victim and say, hey, I'm this person's father, and, and that person is underage. Right. And now you're in trouble. You are in big, big trouble. Uh, have we covered a scam before? I think we've covered a, a version of it. Yeah. Yes. This seems all very familiar. It is. Unfortunately, the tragedy here is that this gentleman named Jared Johns Committed suicide. That is awful. Yeah. And it was right after this extortion scam was pulled on him. And, of course, the the police and uh, his family have the messages that were sent back and forth. And it doesn't even look like Jared was involved with any of the exchange of photos or anything like that. He was Mm -hmm. on a dating site. 
He's a father of two young children and oh. was not married, but was uh, you know looking to connect with someone, to date someone. Right. And these folks reached out and started this scam. Uh, and he exchanged messages with them. And his messages said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm confused. Please help me understand. He asked for proof. And the scammers on the other side said, no, you, you know what you did. And you're going to be going to jail. You're in a, a lot of trouble. And according to the records that the police collected, it was not long after he got some of these messages that Jared took his own life. Do they have any idea who was sending him the messages? They're working on that. Police are investigating, like I said, there are indications that it is some folks who are running this scam out of prison. Right. Which is remarkable in itself. It, it is. And actually, uh, Jared's mother reached out to the folks who were running this scam via text and, uh, you know, expressed her horror and, and said, how can you live with yourself? These are the consequences right. of what you've done. And they responded once and said uh, they didn't feel that they were responsible. And then they blocked the number. Right. There's a lot to unpack here. There is. This is, this is an absolutely horrible case. Absolutely terrible. There was a, a case a while ago where somebody swatted somebody else and that person got killed. Yeah. They swatted the wrong person. Yep. Yep. We and covered it on the Cyberwire uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Tragic. The person who made the fraudulent call that resulted in the police showing up at the house has now been indicted for murder, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm wondering if that is a possibility in this case. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you have the circumstances where... I think it's fair to say Jared had some fragile parts of his personality. He was yep. dealing with PTSD. Yep. According to the stories I've read, he was doing quite well with it. He was getting help. He was doing everything he should be doing. He was working through it. He had had some injuries. He served in Afghanistan, mm. but he was sort of getting his life on the right track. Yep. And these guys come in and mess it all up. It was too much for him to bear. And I, I suspect this probably wasn't the only thing that he was dealing with, but it seems like this might have been the thing that put him over the edge. So in yeah. terms of direct responsibility for his death, that might be difficult to prove. But boy, I, I, I'd like someone to pay for this. Yeah. I hope they track these folks down and justice is served yeah. because, you know, you think about the consequences of some of these scams and you think, oh, well, somebody lost some money. Right. Maybe they have insurance or anything like that. But this is a case where, no, a life was lost. Yep. And there's no recovering from that. No. Right. So a, a tragic story, a, a sad story. Again, uh, thanks to uh, our listener for sending this in, our listener Todd. Uh, a, a sad story to share, but uh, worth sharing. It's an important lesson, I think, that some of these scams have serious consequences. Mm -hmm. Well, Joe, that's a hard story to follow, I yeah. know, but uh, <laughs> we're going to do our best here. So what do you have for us this week? So my story comes from Tony Ryder McMillan over at todaysconveyancer.co. UK. That's what? Dot, dot what? Dot co. Dot, dot co. Dot co. Dot UK. UK. I see. Right. This is a website that I guess is talking about people who are in charge of conveying money to other people. Oh, I see. The title of the article is, Are Law Firms Wising Up to Conveyancing Scams? But we've talked about these kind of scams before. This is where someone gets into a firm's email system and then monitors the email for the right time to strike. Right. And they send an email with new account information to some victim, and the victim then wires money to the wrong account, and the money's gone because the hackers have told them to do this, right? Mm -hmm. yep. so they're fraudsters. I don't know that they're hackers, but right. law firms have taken to telling their customers, at the beginning of a transaction, here's our account information. It will not change. 
And you should disregard any emails to the contrary, hmm. right? As a way of protecting against this. Right. Because imagine you're buying a house and yep. the law firm says, okay, go ahead and wire the money to our account. But at the same time, we've changed our account, wire it to this account instead. And you get an email from the law firm that says this, but you're actually sending it to a scammer's account. Right. And yeah. the money's gone, mm -hmm. right? Now you can't buy your house, all your savings and your time is lost. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. So law firms say, here's our, our information at the beginning of the transaction. And they also say it won't change. But there's another side of this operation, right? Mm. The client has bank information as well. And if the scammers compromise their email and monitor that email traffic, they can tell the law firm, send the payment here, right? So now this is money leaving the law firm going to a client and the client's been compromised. Mm, so okay. it's kind of like you can you can do this both one of two ways, right? We right. Can, we can compromise the law firm and have the client send us the money. We can compromise the client and have the law firm send us the money. Right. The Solicitor's Regulation Authority, the SRA in the UK, says that losses from this are around 10 million pounds a year. Hmm. That's $13.3 million right now. Wow. Every year getting lost this way. Yeah. And here's the interesting part of this article that I hadn't ever been aware of or considered before. But do you know when these scams are most likely to occur? Mm, no, when? On Friday afternoon or Monday morning. And you think about this. On Friday afternoon, your head's not in the job, right? You're thinking about the weekend. Mm -hmm. You're getting ready to go. Right. You know, you've got plans. Everybody just wants to get out of here. Right. Everybody wants to get out of here. Plus, okay. if you are targeted for a fraudulent wire transfer, and it happens on a Friday afternoon, you may not know about it till Monday morning when you right. find out about it. There's a time window for the scammers to get in and move the money around so you can't get it back. Mm -hmm. And the other one is Monday morning when you show up at work. You may not be at your best. Mm. You may have been up late watching the Dragon's Ulster game. The game was Sunday night. It starts kind of late. Maybe you were at the game. Maybe you were watching the game. Mm -hmm. Suffice to say, maybe you're not at your best on Monday morning. So the fraudsters contact you, and they know that you're not at your best, so they attack at these times. I thought that was an interesting angle to this. Yeah, that is. I have heard of some of the scams where, for example, I've heard with vehicle registration scams or mm -hmm. parking ticket scams where someone will reach out and say, basically, unless you pay this parking ticket within 24 hours, bad things are going to happen. Right. And they send it to you on a Friday. But of course, everyone at the agencies that handle parking tickets are closed for the weekend. Right. But lucky you, you can pay online. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I have heard of it there, but this is a little different twist on that. Yeah. This is going after a huge pile of money. I mean, some of the stories in this article, we're talking about 60,000 pounds and 100,000 pounds. Hmm. There, there are big payouts for these criminals. Clients can protect themselves by just using two-factor authentication on their email and maybe even by saying to their solicitor's office or conveyance office or their law firm or whatever that, hey, here is my banking information and it also will not change for the duration of this and you should disregard any emails to the contrary hmm. as well. All right. Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. My favorite part of the show. Joe, our catch of the day this week comes from a listener named TJ. He reached out to us on Twitter with this one. Now, this message claims to come from London. So you know what that means. Yeah. .co.uk. <laughs> yes, but it also means ridiculous accents. Ah, okay. <laughs> it goes oh, we... like this. 
Dearest, my name is Shirley Taylor. I'm presently in London Hospital undergoing chemotherapy and radiation therapy treatment for lung cancer. The doctor said the cancer is at its final stage and I have few days to live. My late husband left 15,500,000 British pounds sterling in my account before his death. I'm contacting you because I want to use the fund for charitable foundation for the needy in your location. My last wish is to help the needy, motherless, less privileged, and widows. I will instruct my bank through my lawyer in writing to transfer the fund to you once I receive your reply. God bless you, Mrs. Taylor. What do you think, Joe? <laughs> I think that was a great accent. <laughs> That's one of your finest performances. Oh, thank ever. you very much. Yes, I'd like to thank the Academy. Right. Go on. Miss <laughs> yeah. Taylor. Uh, I believe Miss Taylor is not actually who she claims to be. <laughs> She's probably not suffering from lung cancer, and she probably does not have 15 million pounds. No. Bank. It's an interesting twist, though, that she's, she's not trying to give the money to you. She's trying to give the money to needy people right. and I guess sort of banking on, on your greed that right, <laughs> once, yeah. you get the, once you get your, your, your dirty mitts on this money, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, you might send some to the to less privileged than the widows, but right. 15 million I, pounds sterling sitting in your account, maybe you'll take a little commission. There is no hook in this, right? <laughs> I mean, it looks like there's no hook, but what's in it for me? Why would I even respond to this? I don't understand. Well, to, I think to to have a big pile of money sent to your bank account from across the world with someone who is soon going to be dead and not be able to claw it back. Right. So I think it's just... It's just relying on me being crooked. Exactly. Right. right. On your greed. It's greed. It's just greed. Yeah. Relying on your on your greed to take advantage of a poor dying woman. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess uh, these guys are kind of like, there's got to be people like us out there we yeah, can scam. Right. It's, we can't be the only ones. <laughs> right. Yeah. Talk about no honor among thieves. Right. Boy. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my interview with Dale Zabriskie from Proofpoint. He's going to be talking about their state of the fish survey. And we are back. Joe, recently I had the pleasure of speaking with Dale Zabriskie. He is from Proofpoint, and they recently published a report called The State of the Fish, and we're going to talk to Dale about that. Here's my interview with Dale Zabriskie. Email being still the main vector of attack in the world, and there's so much of it out there that the fishing becomes where everybody is still going. It's still human, right? We, we Sometimes we want to make this thing all technical, but in reality... We're still human on each end of the scope right here. What are you seeing in terms of trends? When you look at this year's report versus previous years, what's the same and what's changed? What continues to change and increase is that the social engineering attacks are increasing annually. We had a 7% increase of individuals experiencing phishing attacks from last year to this year. And then we saw increases on things like voice phishing or vishing, as we call it, and text phishing. These are things that are starting to really become commonplace in the world today. Almost half of our respondents said they experienced the voice phishing and the text phishing in 2018. And additionally, we saw a major increase, a 33% increase in USB 
social engineering attacks, hmm. which was really interesting because that takes a physical thing, right? That takes somebody picking something up and actually physically using it as opposed to email, whereas it's not a huge threat. Uh, only 4% told us that they had experienced it. That is up about 33% from last year. Describe to us, what are we talking about with that? You pick up something, you see something. How many times have you seen a, a cell phone sitting or a smartphone sitting somewhere in a uh, public setting? Hmm. People pick it up. They want to take a look at it. And obviously, we like to judge hopefully of people and say they're trying to figure out who it belongs to, try to send it, to, you know, get it back to the owner. Uh, the same thing happens with USB sticks. Thumb drives. They're sitting around. Bad guys put a lot of different threats on them. One uh, organization published a list of 29 different types of USB attacks that are out there last year that uh, things from rubber ducky and uh, smartphone based uh, HID attacks, all these different things that have been put on USB thumb drives and left in strategic locations, often in the front of some corporate setting where an individual coming to work sees that on the ground, say, oh, that's interesting, picks it up. And what's the first uh, inclination? Mm hmm. Plug it in. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, hey, curiosity got, kills the cat, right? It does. And and the credentials as well. Right. <laughs> you know, it's so true. It, it, and yet the attitude, oh, I got a free thumb drive uh, as opposed to, you know, what's the best practice? Take that thing, walk it into your InfoSec people and say, I found this outside. You know, you deal with it. Mm, mm. What are you seeing in terms of any shifts in the sophistication of these attacks? Are the social engineering schemes growing more sophisticated? Are they getting more targeted or, or, or is it a shotgun approach? Well, it's across the board, but the what we do, what we have seen over the last few years is a great deal of sophistication on a couple of fronts. And one of those is that there's been an almost 20 percent increase of spear phishing targeted at InfoSec professionals. Hmm. Okay. So a spear phishing attack, very, very focused, very sophisticated, very personal that's sent to someone at an organization that hopefully on the attacker's part has some sort of access. You know, for years we've seen uh, since social networks have been out like LinkedIn and Facebook and different things, people utilizing what they've learned about uh, a target on, say, LinkedIn to let's say someone on LinkedIn posted that they were at a conference recently and they really enjoyed it. What we see are attacks of people saying, hey, Bob, I saw you. It was nice meeting you at the so-and-so conference. Mm. Here's an article I think that you'd like to see. And of course, you go to these conferences and you meet people. You're not going to go home and remember Bob versus Ted versus Sue versus Joe. And so, yeah, I was at that conference. Oh, yeah, let me take a look at that. That's interesting. And that's where the attack gets propagated. Mm. So much more focused and sophisticated attacks. And often what we see in campaigns as far as phishing attack campaigns is that there are fewer of them, but they're more within each campaign. They're very, very targeted within the campaign that is being created. There's a lot of them out there, tens of millions uh, beyond, you know, number of phishing attacks that are happening every year. But the sophistication and the focus of them is what we're seeing increase uh, dramatically. They're getting very, very smart 
One of the other big findings uh, in this report is that there's been an assumption that younger workers are better at combating the threats that are out there because the millennials or however you want to define them are more technically savvy. Hmm. They think they've been around. They've you know, A lot of people have never known anything but a computer or a, a phone or a screen in their hand, right? right? They've never known anything but the digital natives. But what the data shows is they are the younger you go, the worse they are at understanding what is phishing, what is ransomware, what do I do about it? Ah. And that the baby boomers, if you will, or the older workers are significantly better at understanding and protecting themselves. Hmm. And and I, f- I find that really interesting because I think assumptions are made within organizations that are, if I may use the word, are digital immigrants that have to come across the digital Ellis Island to get right. stamped and processed, right, struggle because they don't understand and they, they've got a computer and I can do a few things. But really, they're more aware of what's happening in the space and they're they're less trusting of things that come in. I, I, and I think the millennials, if you will, they're continuously partially connected, mm-hmm. right? They're always partially connected one way or the other. And that is just part of their lives. And so they just, oh, oh, here's something else. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I wonder what that says. Don't assume that the younger people get it and target the training to understand who really needs what type of approach, but that as you have uh, individuals, you know, across all age groups and uh, and understanding and experience, uh, one thing is not going to do it all for everyone. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. It's a, a friend of mine says, you know, never underestimate both the wisdom and guile of an older person. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> it's very, very true. And yeah. and, and the, the other thing that I would say is that this is really emotional. All that we do online and with our technology carries emotion with it. Hmm. We are tied to our technology in a very emotional way. The things that we do, the passwords we create are based on emotion. Hmm. Look at the hack that happened a few years ago at this cheating website, Ashley Madison. So remember when that came down yeah. and all this stuff was exposed. If you look at some of the uh, passwords that were there, they were like, like, I'm really going to cheat. Hmm. That was the password. I should not be doing this. Oh, wow. And my personal favorite, you will never find out. Wow. Which, of course, we did find out. Right. Uh, right. And we have an emotional connection to our lives and our technology. And on the other side of the fence, if you will, the IT, the InfoSec people are extremely emotional about what they're doing and how they're doing it and and things that happen. And so if we start to understand and appreciate the emotion involved that we're all approaching this from a human perspective, then we can help from a IT InfoSec person can help to understand better how the user is approaching what they're doing and the user can start to appreciate what IT has to go through. And if we can break down those barriers and not make it a sense of here's the policy and this is what you're supposed to do. And the other person saying, well, to heck with that, I want to do this. And we start to meld the minds a little bit. I think we're all going to be better off and we'll have less issues and, uh, and less breaches and a, and a better experience across the board within the, the corporate space. 
Joe, what do you think? I think Dale has a great voice. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? Yes, he does. There's something soothing about his voice. That's right. He could, I, I could listen to him all day. <laughs> right. I love the name of the study, State of the Fish. I think that is hilarious Yeah. and and well done. I like his first point and his last point that kind of meld together here, that we are all human mm-hmm. at both ends of the attack, right? They're humans on either side. That's kind of our point of this show. Yeah. And it should be part of everybody's security process Yeah, is understanding that. Social engineering attacks are increasing year over year. And this all comes down to the fact that we're just emotional beings, mm-hmm. right? That's important, I think. It shouldn't be lost on anybody. It's so easy to focus on the technical. Right. We've been so focused on the technical for good reason right. that the bad guys have pivoted. Because we've actually gotten pretty good at focusing on the technical. Yeah. You know, people don't make use of zero-day exploits all the time. Right. Unless they're like nation states or something. They use very old hacks. But why would I try to penetrate an organization when I can just call 10 people and wind up with a password? Right. Cheap and it works. Exactly. I liked that he was talking about USB social engineering. Mm, mm -hmm. He said that's on the rise. There was a paper from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, University of Michigan, and Google, I think about a year or two years ago. And we'll put a link in the show notes here. Mm. But this social engineering attack, they found that they were 45 to 98% successful in getting people to pick up the USB sticks. Right. Or getting people to plug in the USB sticks that they picked up. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the paper, it's fascinating on what actually does work and what doesn't work. If they found out that if you have keys with an address on it and a USB stick attached, that generally people will return it. But if you put the word confidential on it, then people open it. (laughs) (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) Good good study. Yeah. Another observation they made that's kind of interesting is that not a lot of money is being spent on email security. Yeah, relative to other things. Relative to other things. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, he was talking about data shows that the younger you are, the worse you are at spotting phishing. And he says that younger people have tend to be digitally connected all the time. Yep. I would also like to offer, and that may, might be true, but I'd like to offer another reason okay. for that. And that's just that younger people haven't been abused by life as much as, as older folks <laughs> right. have been. Yes. The weight of the world has not yet crushed their spirit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. Right. They're still looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, giving right. everyone the benefit of the doubt rather than the, uh, the right. cynical, shriveled up old men that you and I have become. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, good. All right, good. This has been a really uh, upbeat show this week. Yeah, Joe. yeah. <laughs> we'll try to be happier next week. All right. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. And of course, thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.